This is the Steelers Standard on Steelers Nation Radio and Podcast on Steelers.com. Steelers Standard off and running with myself, Tom Opperman, and of course, Jacob Reck. The Steelers go to 3-3 three and three heading into the bye week, getting a big win over the Seattle Seahawks. In overtime at Heinz Field, Sunday night football. Actually, the win came early in the morning on Monday. So Monday morning? Monday morning win for the Pittsburgh Steelers to get them to 500. And the man who won them that football game is the man that they paid all that money to in the offseason, Mr. T.J. Watt, worth every single penny of that $80 million guaranteed that he got. Two sacks in the overtime period, including a strip sack of Geno Smith deep in Seattle's territory that allowed the Steelers to just kind of fall over in the middle of the field if you're Ben Mm -hmm. Roethlisberger and Chris Boswell, who was tremendous in this game, nails the game-winning field goal. You paid that man for a reason. I know there was a lot of debate in the offseason of will they, won't they, franchise tag or long-term contract. So far, even though I know he's been hurt for one of the games and had to leave early in the Raiders game, he's been worth every single penny. I would argue that T.J. Watt has won the Steelers two football games this year, one against the Bills and one against the Seahawks. Yeah, I don't see any way around that argument because in the Bills game, he absolutely destroyed Josh Allen in the Bills offensive line, and you saw what he did in overtime on back-to-back plays on Sunday night. That is what... Defensive player of the year, that's what a defensive player of the year does. That's what a man who gets paid that much money needs to do. And T.J. Watt did all of the above. Three, four, maybe five guys. I think Chris Collinsworth said on the broadcast the entire state of Washington was blocking T.J. Watt on the (laughs) final play where he was able to get the strip sack of Geno Smith. Uh, he's just a very savvy pass rusher. Gino stepped up in the pocket after a pump fake, and Watt, eyes on him the whole time, disengaged from the four, five, six whole state of Washington that was blocking him, cut it back on the inside, and karate chopped the ball right out of his hands onto the turf. Devin Bush picked it up, almost ran it into the other end zone, and then turned around and went down, like I said, to set up that field goal. But I kind of had been... I don't want to say critical, but just wanting a little more from T.J. Watt the past couple weeks. Uh, I thought, you know, in the Denver game, as the Broncos were driving down the field, scoring touchdowns late, and finally having the ball on the doorstep with a chance for the game to be tied with a touchdown and then a completed two-point conversion, and put that one into overtime. Last week, I was waiting for T.J. to make that big sack. I was waiting for him to put Bridgewater in the dirt and have the clock run out on the Denver Broncos, and it, it didn't happen. And then this week, as the Seahawks were making their frantic comeback, I was finding myself thinking of the same thing, that all it takes is a Geno Smith sack here. There's 47 seconds left on the clock. They have no timeouts left. You basically put him in the dirt with receivers running 15, 20 yards downfield. The game's almost going to be over pretty much. So waiting, 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 never got it. Seahawks drove right down the field, kicked that field goal. And then in overtime, my prayers were definitely answered with that first big sack and then, of course, the strip sack. I would say TJ, in the games of which didn't include Buffalo and Den- er, sorry, not Denver, Seattle, he was playing like a pro bowler. He was playing like someone who can acquire some national attention, but it's only in flashes. He played like the defensive player of the year we know he's capable of becoming, and, and 
He's playing up to the money of which he so rightfully deserved in these two games, of which you could say he single-handedly won the Seattle game and had a big hand in winning that Buffalo game uh, with his two sacks, one including a strip sack. Um, I just think that T.J. Watt is someone who's always going to have the attention and just which game is he going to step up and really take over, and you've seen it now twice out of six games. I mean... To be honest, Tom, is that a little low for a ratio for someone to with a degree of, of TJ with the pedigree of TJ Watt? Yeah, it is, but like that's just another illustration, honestly, of how good he is. That we can say that that's low. Of course, no, that's right. what, that's what I, that's the point that I'm trying to make is you expect him to do more than just two out of six games. Say I, I'm going to win you that game. I can I can help you win that game on my own. And yes, he's done it twice already in only six games, but. There's a big game coming after the bye week against Cleveland of which the Browns are very depleted. Baker Mayfield will be playing hurt through that game. And, and his he, brother was torturing Cleveland all Absolutely game. was. Did you see him on the sidelines whenever he would get to him and say, you, these guys can't block me? They couldn't. He, he didn't show up on the stat sheet with a sack, but if you just watch the game, Watt, the penetration, the senior Watt, J.J., was all over Baker. He was the reason why Baker had to leave the game in a sling because he put him into the dirt after Baker had gotten rid of the football. I mean, the pressure was insane from J.J. Watt, and I think J.J. Watt's a little bit past his prime. So I think T.J. Watt can have a, Watt can yeah, do that. I think T.J. can have a field day against that team. And that was with a, a healthier Browns team than what the Steelers will be facing in two weeks. And J.J. Watt was the only regular starter on that defensive end mm-hmm. rotation. Chandler Jones was out, and was the out, other, right? uh, I forget his name, I think it's Adams or something, was out as well. So it was all on J.J., who's usually their third guy as part of that rotation. He comes in as the one guy and dominates. T.J. will have his partners in crime. Helping. We'll have Cam Hayward out there. Who, He'll have Highsmith. He'll have Ingram. He might even have Tuit for what we know. That's the point I was about to make as well. So With they the bye week coming in They right should now, dominate this this offensive line. I think so, too. Um it's it's something that you expect of T.J. Watt. That's the difference between T.J. Watt and basically 95% of the rest of the league on, on the defensive side of the ball is that with these kind of guys, you expect them to take advantage of bad teams. And that's what you saw T.J. Watt do on Sunday night against Seattle. Geno Smith uh, was just not able to escape the penetration made by T.J. Watt. And who's to say if Russell Wilson... Uh, would have it would have created a different outcome. I think Russell Wilson has an escapability that Geno Smith doesn't have, and a pocket, a pocket presence or a po- pocket comfortability that that Geno Smith doesn't have. That maybe those two plays don't end up in sacks. I think the biggest myth that was trying to get off the ground all week long was how Geno Smith's mobile because he's not. He's just uh, he's, he was in college. In WVU in in 2012. He still wasn't amazingly mobile. He liked to pass in the pocket at WVU a lot. I mean, when it's it's nine years later, you're going to lose a step. So whatever mobility you had or lack thereof, you're going to have even less now. I think Russell Wilson would have made that game a lot more difficult for the Steelers. I think it's fair to say, considering it was only won by a field goal, that the Seattle Seahawks could have easily won that game if Russell Wilson was starting. I don't know how Russell Wilson could have done better in the second half because they were great in the second half, but I think he does a lot better in the first half and doesn't dig him into that hole. And a 14 that, nothing hole. That's probably why they do end up winning the game, but if ifs and buts were candies and nuts, we'd all have a hell of a time 
Russell Wilson was on the sideline, and thank God for that if you're the Steelers. Even though Geno Smith gave you a little cardiac arrest down the stretch, two sacks for Watt, uh, obviously the strip sack as well. He had three tackles for loss in addition to that. Two more quarterback hits on top of the two times he put Geno Smith in the dirt. And I think one of the more impressive stats out of a plethora of impressive stats from his performance on Sunday night, he had three passes defended as an outside linebacker. And they weren't like in coverage, perfect step for step, bat the ball away. They were, I'm not going to get home on my pass rush. Let Mm -hmm. me jump up and swat this ball out of the air. He did that three times. Uh, J.J. Watt, his older brother, again, not to keep drawing comparisons, but, I mean, J.J. Swat was his name for the first five, six years in the league because he made a living on doing that almost every game. And there was one of those passes defended. T.J. Watt's just as good at it. There was one pass uh, defended or pass swatted down that T.J. had that easily could Could have have been been caught, and it would have been a pick six. Knowing T.J.'s speed, I think there's no way that he would have been incapable of just grabbing that ball and sprinting down the field with no one in front of him. I don't know if anyone could. Maybe D.K. Metcalf would would have been the only one that I could have seen catching up to The best part, too, about that play is how good and unique Keith Butler is utilizing the positioning of these players. Watt started that play in the middle of the field. Looked like a middle linebacker. Then as the snap cadence started to go, he creeped his way towards the right side of the line, not his usual side. Then he floated back to the middle, and then he started his rush on the right side and then realized he wasn't getting home, and he dropped back into the middle of the field. And like you said, I mean, that really could have been an interception. It was right in his breadbasket. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to fault him for not catching it because no. he still ended up winning the game for the, the Steelers. And moving really fast, too, in a short Right, it's area a little of, unexpected. Of, I mean, you can't— going two yards at 1,000 miles per hour. You can't expect him to make a catch every time the ball comes in his direction. And let's be honest, the, the rest of his stat line totally made up for it. Yes, you would have loved to have seen him got that interception, considering, A, it would have been great to see TJ get that, B— the lack of interceptions by the team as a whole on the year so far through six weeks, you would like to see at least one interception. I think they only have, what, one on the year? I think so, and they did not get one yesterday against Geno, which was uh, Sunday against Geno, which, I mean, that was the one I was looking for. I was looking for Geno to be the one to throw a nice pick, maybe two picks. And he honestly, other than the ones that were tipped, he didn't really throw an interceptable pass. I mean, he was pretty conservative. I was going to say, it's it's not that he was being completely accurate. It was just he was being very conservative with the ball. I think he learned his lesson from the Thursday night game against the Rams when he threw that interception at the end of the game. And I think that's exactly what they were trying to drill into him for the 10 days leading into the game. is to Don't just, force don't yourself. Don't force the turnover. Just our best chance of winning this game is if we continue to keep possession and, and play the field position battle. And if we have to give up the ball, it's because of a punt and not because of a turnover. Uh, unfortunately, that lasted until the very end of the game when they gave it right to the Steelers at their own 20-yard line that set up the Boswell game-winning field goal. Uh, Watt was obviously the MVP of the game and won that game for the Steelers, but Cam Hayward definitely has his fingerprints all over this victory as well. Really the only member of that defensive line that's worth a damn right now. Mm-hmm. I would say up until overtime, Cam was my, my team MVP. Probably. Uh, big sack for Cam. Uh, two tackles for loss. Another quarterback hit on top of that. Uh, he had nine total tackles in the game. That was tied with Minka for the most. Uh, and Minka, we'll get to him in a second, but left a lot to the imagination in his performance on Sunday night. But Cam Hayward, 
absolute stud. Did not leave anything up to the imagination. Like I'm saying though, it's it's Cam and just a bunch of guys out there. I mean, they're mm. not good. Which that Will, makes... Williamson was calling them third and fourth stringers yesterday on Madden Mark Madden show. I mean, he wasn't even giving them the credit of being the backups. He was saying that these guys are fourth stringers that might not even be getting a hat if everybody was healthy. Mm-hmm. So it's Cam. And it's just... very feasible to say that Chris Wormley, Isaiah Bugs, Carlos Davis, two out of those three would not have been getting helmets if you had Tyson and Stefan Tudor. Well, I think, to Carlo, and I think another underrated one, I've said it last week, was Carlos Davis, who played well against the Buffalo Bills and then just has not been healthy since that game. And I think he was the guy that, is the number three behind Alu Alu mm-hmm. and Hayward. I think that he's the guy that steps into that role, and I think he did well when Alu Alu went out, and then he himself went out. So that lends way to Bugs or Wormley or Loudermilk. Mm-hmm. And Loudermilk, I think, has some potential. I, I think he can become someone that's serviceable in this league, but he was a fifth-round pick this year, and when they took him, everybody and their mother was saying that the Steelers really took a reach. So you would just assume that it was a project and that he wouldn't really play much at all this year. Really a redshirt year, if you will, in the NFL, and they'd develop him into something that they could use next year at the earliest. But he's had to be thrown into the fire already this year, and he's made some plays. Honestly, uh, other more than Wormley, and I know Wormley had a pretty decent pass breakup on uh, Sunday, but more than Wormley and more than Bugs, I think Loudermilk out of those fourth stringers has been the one that has shown the most, at least, but it's still not showing nearly enough. And no. I think you saw their lack of gap discipline other than Hayward when the Seahawks just ran Alex up Collins the was rushing running yards everywhere in the second, in half, the second yeah. half. Yeah, Alex Collins and whoever the backup was. I don't even DJ know. DJ Dallas. DJ Dallas, and there was a third guy too. Uh, Travis Homer. Yeah, Travis Homer. I, I never heard of Travis Homer. Five point ones per carry for Collins. Thirteen point five per carry for Travis Homer, and DJ had four point three yards per carry. So they ran. Yeah, the all ball. three guys yeah. were finding success through the run game, but I think it makes it even more impressive that with just Cam Hayward out there, what he's doing with his with his present company. You have to say it is, I think, his loudest season of his career, right? We've always said Cam's been the quiet guy to always just fly under everyone's radar somehow, some way, even though he's been named to first-team All-Pro and second-team All-Pro and Pro Bowl teams. You're not hearing Cam's name be thrown into the conversation nationally of the best defensive players of the year. And this year, I think, is his loudest year, and it has everything to do with the guys that he's lining up next to because if it was playing with if, if he was playing alongside Stefan Tuitt and Tyson Olawalu yes you would still be hearing Cam Hayward's name but you would also be hearing Tyson's name and and Steph's name it'd be the the unit who you'd be impressed with but because it's just Cam he's and the fact that he's still dominating and and as Williamson has said multiple times across our many shows He's being triple teamed out there. He's getting the most attention out of any defensive lineman in the league right now, even more so than Aaron Donald, because at least Aaron Donald is playing next to him. He's got help. He's got help. He's playing next to his starters. Cam Hayward is drawing the most attention out of any defender right now, and he's still dominating. So I think it's incredible that it's come this late in his career, but it's his loudest season so far. He's the hardcore fans player, because if you're a hardcore NFL junkie, I mean, if you're an analyst on TV, you obviously know what his impact is. If you're, you know, not, I'm not trying to sound like an arrogant jerk off here, but (laughs) if you really pay attention and are a hardcore fan of football, like you and I are, and a a lot of people in this building are, 
you notice Cam Hayward. But when you're just the casual fan that, you know, the, the names are the quarterbacks and the running backs and T.J. Watt, you know because he's all over the place on the field. You, you don't notice Cam Hayward. You just don't really recognize what he brings to the table. And I think that's why you're saying this is his loudest year because in the past, you know, people just kind of had him go under the radar for them because the only people really talking about him were the, the experts on TV that were saying, you know, Cam Hayward's just as good as T.J. Watt in that Steelers defense, and all the you know just regular NFL fans are sitting there going, "Wow, really, Cam Hayward? I didn't even know who Cam Hayward mm-hmm. is." And it's a shame because you're right; he's a perennial first-team All-Pro, and I think he's on his way to being a first-team All-Pro again this year. I mean, I don't really see anybody else that could put their hand in that pile. Obviously, Aaron Donald will, but, but you not get two, not so. right now through six weeks. It's Cam, it's Cam Hayward, Hayward and it's everyone else. And it's Aaron Donald, but you get two. So it's not like you, you're just fighting for that one spot as far as that first-team All-Pro slot is concerned. So, yeah, I think he's having his loudest year, too. I think he's showing up more because he has to show up more. Mm-hmm. And and I agree that triple, quadruple team, just like T.J. Watt is for the most part, you got to find some help. you got to be able to take some of that pressure off of a guy like Hayward to continue to just keep getting the most out of him and to get more out of him. And – you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that T.J. Watt plays his best games, A, when he's fully healthy, like in Buffalo, and obviously he's back to full strength now. But when the guys around him are fully healthy, too, when you got the Highsmith and the Ingram mm. action happening across from Watt. And on Sunday night, it was Highsmith. On the season opener against the Bills, it was Ingram who really made that impact felt. But when you have that other guy, that's what frees up your superstars to – really be superstars i mean mm-hmm. bud dupree helped tj watt break out the past two seasons because he was so good on the other side and that was a huge question mark is replacing him in this defense and i think alex highsmith and ingram as a committee when healthy are doing a very fine job and they're letting tj be free to do tj things and on sunday i think it's alex highsmith that deserves the hat tip i mean yes tj watt player of the game on the defense cam hayward right behind him and i mean like right behind right behind him, him. literally but, up until overtime i was ready to say cam hayward deserves the game ball on defense bronze medal i think it goes to highsmith i agree i think highsmith had one of his best games as a pro I, not i don't think it's think i think it's by statistical measures he had his best game not just got his first sack but got a sack and a half he was always in the pocket, always disrupting. And four quarterback I, hits. That's the four team quarterback high. hits. Yeah, uh, two, yeah, two tackles for a loss as well, including a great tackle for a loss on the goal line uh, when the Seahawks were threatening. Just absolutely read the play extremely well, mm-hmm. and I think it was Geno Smith that he took down on that play. I actually think that was one of his sacks, but it was just a busted play from Geno. Yeah, he played well, and when you're getting that kind of pressure on the other side. It's impossible to handle the Steelers because a double team to T.J. Watt is like a single team. And then if Highsmith's going to play like that, he'll beat every single single team that you throw at him. And to add to the optimism from Highsmith's play, he had the toughest matchup as far as an offensive lineman was concerned. He had to go up against Dwayne Brown all game long, and he did a really good job of whooping Dwayne Brown, uh, a really Clearly. successful uh, offensive tackle in this NFL for a long time. So. And that's why I love what I saw from Highsmith. And that's why you you bring in a guy, and I, I know this is a weird point to make, but that's why you bring in a guy like Melvin Ingram, so that you have that buffer zone after T.J. Watt. If T.J. Watt is really getting beat, you still have two extra outside linebackers who can create pressure for you. 
And today it just happened to be, or rather on Sunday, it happened to be Alex Highsmith's day. And you're going to see throughout the rest of the season Melvin Ingram have a, a good day. And then later on you'll see Highsmith step back up to the plate. It's just, it, 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 it really makes you feel comfortable considering how uncomfortable you were before Melvin Ingram was brought in. Everyone else besides looking at everyone else besides TJ and, and Highsmith on your on your depth chart at the outside linebacker position, but now you have that depth, and it doesn't even matter because right now Highsmith is stepping up and and Melvin Ingram is stepping up in strides in, in certain moments, but still, you now have not just one, not just two, but you have three guys on your team that can make that impact at the outside position. One last positive that I want to throw out there for a guy is seventh round pick Trey Norwood who is playing a lot for a seventh round pick uh he's this is a guy Tom who we said at the end of training camp before the final 53 was not going to make it yeah we were idiots um we weren't alone though he plays a really we were not alone in that assessment big big role in this team plays in that nickel package a lot had what two or three pass breakups? He had at one the end pass of the day? breakup to in this game. He had a tackle for a loss in this game. Uh, this won't show up on the stat sheet as anything more than just a regular tackle. But in the first possession of the Seahawks, he hit destroyed it, laid DK out Metcalf. DK Metcalf. Was going to be an easy first down. I think Metcalf might still be running honestly if it wasn't for Norwood making that tackle. But it's ironic because in the second half, the, the headline was how many missed tackles the Steelers had. That was the entire opposite. That was as thorough as a tackle as you could ask for from your defender. And again, he's not like a world beater, and he's not even. I don't even know if I'm ready to say he's even good yet, but he's impressive for a seventh round pick to have he's to play that you. many minutes and to play them well and to not be a complete liability out on that football field is huge. And I know that they're they're still trying to get somewhere this year. I know that they're they're three and three heading into the bye and. It looks like you can go five and four. Hell, with the Cleveland injury status, it looks like you might be six, six and, three. and three. So things are still very much alive for this season. But I can't help but look at some of this stuff and think this is a really positive sign for the years to come. And, and Norwood's another one of those guys because I think he's going to be able to continue to. If he's playing this well as a seventh round pick rookie, you'd hope that he would just continue to develop. And in two to three years, he might be a really good slot corner slash maybe take over for Edmonds in the safety spot. Wow. I mean, right now, you've been more impressed with Trey Norwood in his first six games of his career than pro- probably anything you've seen out of Terrell Edmonds. I agree. I don't I think, think Edmonds is a more highly pedigreed player, but... I mean, he was a first-round pick. Yeah, and I think he's and I, bigger. And I guess and... maybe that balances it out that Trey Norwood was their seventh-round pick, and you weren't expecting him to make your Final 53 as a rookie, and he's come out and he's made some impact plays, something that Terrell Edmonds... Hasn't done, but we know his ability, his best ability has been his availability, and that's why he's been on the team for the past four years. But still, in, in terms of these first six games, Trey Norwood has shown you a lot more for his potential than Terrell Evans has. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I think an underrated aspect about Norwood is, you know, yeah, he's a seventh-round pick, but he played at Oklahoma. Like, those bright lights on Sunday Night Football, he got that all the time in college. He went Not to, to take away anything from Virginia Tech, no, yeah, Terrell another Edmonds Power was. 5 school, another great school to go to, and it's a hell of a stadium to play in front of the fans, but Norwood was in the college football playoff, mm-hmm. you know, for a couple of years. Like he's he's Oklahoma been in, has not been a slouch. No, he's been in big past big big time games, mm-hmm. big time situations throughout his college career, and I think that's helping him prepare for 
this big role as a rookie in the seventh round. I think if he was a seventh round pick from, you know, like the University of Texas, San Antonio, the Roadrunners, who they're in the top 25 now, but you know what I mean? If he was one of those smaller schools, who knows if he has the confidence to be able to go out there as a seventh round pick, but who knows if he even gets drafted. You're right. But you know what? When you play for a, a playoff contender every year in front of hundreds of thousands of fans every single Saturday on the road or at home in the big 12, you're going to be ready and you're going to have that confidence. Uh, some of the bad, Minka Fitzpatrick, he led the team in tackles, tied with Cam with nine total. Seven solo was the the high water mark for the team in solo tackles, but didn't show up anywhere past defended. Had a couple missed tackles that were able to get bit broken off for big gains for the Seattle Seahawks. And then I'll honestly throw his partner uh, Edmonds in that category as well as guys who just did not impress in this football game on Sunday. Those two safeties uh, – it's not like the the sky is falling because I think that those two's floor is pretty high, mm-hmm. especially Minka's. Especially Minka's. But they're not even close to their ceilings, especially Minka, and that's what's really concerning. Yeah, I don't know what happened. It, it seems that reality has caught up to us, right? As the season has unfolded, we've just been saying, well, this is what Minka does. You know, you don't really hear his name because people are afraid to pass toward him. But now you're hearing his name and missed tackles. But that's what I that's what I was getting at. Is as the season has unfolded, you've been hearing his name more and more often, and it's not because it's of key tackles he made, he's made in the backfield by coming up on, on a on a safety blitz or interceptions or pass breakups. It's been missed tackles. It's been blown coverages. It's being beaten by Henry Ruggs over the top against the Raiders earlier this season. And it's as I said, it seems that the narrative is inescapable at this point. We cannot lie to ourselves any longer. Through the first six six weeks, you have to say that Minka has been a, a a grave disappointment. A grave disappointment. I agree. And I've been trying to get this first interception off the ground like crazy. I said all week in our episodes that this is the one Geno Smith's going to throw on. Minka's going to take advantage because I figured that the game plan for Seattle would still be our. M.O. is hitting D.K. and Lockett deep downfield, and I thought that's exactly what they'd still try to do with Geno, and they never did. But in that vein, I thought, oh, there's going to be a couple jump balls that Mink is going to be able to center field and, and grab. And the Seahawks didn't really give him that opportunity, but still he didn't go out there and really make a huge play. I mean, like we just said, the biggest play from a defensive back in our minds is the Trey Norwood tackle on D.K. Metcalf. And Every year for the past two years, it's almost been the biggest play by defensive back has been Minka. Almost every single game, you could say that, and I don't know if he's had that real big play at all this year. I don't. I was gonna say, Tom, I couldn't tell you. I think maybe one time he came into the backfield and got it and tackled for loss. That was about it. Devin Bush, again, top ten pick. Steelers traded up to get him, and he's leaving a lot to the imagination still. Um, one theory that Williamson did propose, and mm. we keep going to the Williamson well, but it's a great well to go to. <laughs> the defensive line is so inadequate outside of Hayward that they're not doing their job, and this linebacking core of Schobert and Bush are designed to you know cover, to run free, and not take on a lot of blocks, but now they have to take on a they're lot of blocks because the defensive linemen are letting offensive linemen get off of their spot and get to that second level and clear the road for a running game. So, yeah, I think there's a little bit of they're not playing at their best, Bush and then Schobert too, because of the people in front of them. But also, I mean, Devin Bush, 
not putting Schobert in this category. You're a top 10 pick, man. Mm -hmm. It's time to start becoming the game breaker that we thought you could be after your pretty solid rookie season. But you just haven't been able to build from that, and you've honestly kind of started to take step backwards. So Mm -hmm. Minka and Devin Bush, I think, are the two most concerning pieces of the defense because the expectations are so high for those two, and they're not coming close to them, at least so far. Maybe the bye week, you recharge your batteries, you reset your season, you come back in the second half with a whole new attitude and a better performance, but it's below the line so far. And Devin Bush yeah. more so than Minka. Like, I'm more upset with Bush than Minka, for sure. Ooh, I don't know about that, Tom. I, I mean, at least Minka is still Minka, a serviceable Minka, player. Minka has I think been... Bush has been closer to bad than he's been good. Really? Yeah. I, I understand that. I uh, the, the angle I would go about it to make my argument is the fact that Minka, we know the ceiling for Minka, we know the ceiling for Devin, and Minka's, as much as I respect Devin in his, in his rookie season and those first five games before he went down last year, Minka's ceiling is way higher, right? In, in, a, in a given year, I think Minka is just a better playmaker. So the fact that he's not anywhere near that is why I am very concerned. Well, the Steelers' defense was a tale of two halves on Sunday. They mm-hmm. definitely need to play more like that first half throughout the rest of the season if this team wants to have success and sneak into the playoffs. That'll do it for this episode of Steelers Standard, though. Thanks, as always, for giving us a listen. We are always appreciative of that. For Jacob Brecht, I'm Tom Offerman, and we'll talk to you guys next time when we sit down for the Steelers Standard.